So we're continuing on in our Bible study of the doctrines of grace, and we're going to continue examining the doctrine of limited atonement or particular redemption. And we're going to look at that in particular, no pun intended there, um, this morning to see exactly what does that doctrine say and, and why do we believe this doctrine as opposed to other doctrines that are believed within Orthodox Christianity. Well, let's, let's start with the Word of God. Let's turn in our Bibles, and I know you have your Bibles because this is Bible study, and how do you study the Bible without a Bible? I, I, I'm not particularly sure how you would do that. But turn to 2 Timothy chapter 1. 2 Timothy chapter 1. And I'm going to be reading verses 8 through 9. And I'm, as you undoubtedly know, I use the English Standard Version, the ESV. Maybe a bit different if you're using another version. But 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 through 9 read, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Here, of course, we have Paul writing to his protege, his mentee, the pastor Timothy, and telling Timothy, you know, what, what exactly are, are, are our duties as, as shepherds of Christ's flock. And in this short excerpt, we do see hints of particular redemption, limited atonement. One thing I think about as I prepare for our Lord's Day, I'm working on the lesson or the sermon or whatever I'm, I'm um, doing, <clears throat> I think about us gathering together. And what I think of most frequently nowadays is how this, our gathering on the Lord's Day, is a glimpse of heaven for us, that we will for eternity, when we enter into life everlasting because of the Lord Jesus, we will be worshiping God. We will be gathering with other saints. There's no escaping it. Not that we would want to, but you kind of wonder because there's so many people that are Christians that choose to, to absent themselves from the assembly. How could that be? What is heaven going to be like, I wonder, in these people's minds? What are they thinking about? What are they going to be doing in heaven? Do they imagine that, um, uh, that there's just going to be this big fancy mansion built for them and they are just be a recluse in there? That when, let's say, the archangels, and I'm kind of just, you know, um, using a little bit of fiction here, when the archangels, you know, blast the trumpet to call everyone to assembly to worship the Lord God, they'll just, they'll just say, nah, I'm going to miss today. I'm just going to sleep in. Or I'll, too, I'll watch it on live stream. 
I don't want to be around all those people. <laughs> What's that? You watch it from the cloud. From the cloud, very good. <laughs> That's our brother Christian. He's got a sharp mind. So, we, 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 I know that some of us, you know, we struggle with others, other Christians that we know. That maybe they rub us the wrong way, or they see things a little bit differently. Maybe they're a little bit abrasive in their personality. Well, you know what? There's going to be a lot of those people in heaven, and perhaps we are one of those people. So... You know, I remember a movie that I saw a long time ago, black and white, saw it on TV, and I don't even know what it was, but it had to do with the afterlife. It was one of those Hollywood fantasy movies from like the 30s or 40s, and everybody was in heaven. It was the afterlife, and they went to these big, they, and when they entered heaven, they were sent to these large halls, like lecture halls. If you've gone to a big university, you know the type of lecture halls I'm talking about, where you're just stacked up in a stadium. Um, and they, went, they were sent there to learn things that had not been revealed on earth. And many of us, I know in my experience, um, I've had it said to me by others that, you know, well, I hope when I get to heaven, I'll understand this, or I will learn this. Or when I get to heaven, first thing I'm going to do is ask God this. Well, there's nothing wrong with being curious about why things are the way they are. But I wonder about you know, our, our incurring minds, and when we have a chance to gather for a little glimpse of heaven, and you, know, you guys are here, so I'm kind of like, as the saying goes, preaching to the choir, but I'm also talking to those on live stream. Those that could be here but choose not to be here. It's like if you, can, if you could go to one of those lecture halls and like, okay, we're going to answer. Your questions are going to be answered. Nah, I think I'm going to sleep in. Or no, so-and-so's there and I don't really care for them. I mean, we're hungering for these things. We're hungering for answers. Yet there are many who will just slide by a Bible study class. It's not important to them for whatever reason. Maybe, the, and here's one of the issues we have. We must be honest as Reformed Christians. This is one of our problems, let's say, is pride over knowledge. We're prideful about how much we know. Because honestly, Reformed Christians are very literate, biblically, compared to most Christians, at least in the Western world, probably all over the world. This could be a downfall for us when we think we know this stuff, you know. So these are just my thoughts. And, and, and in a sense, how much I appreciate you, you, brothers and sisters, for being here. And on the other hand, those of my brothers and sisters who are hearing my voice, who could be here but yet are not here, I want to encourage you. I'm not trying to... to um, uh, well, maybe I'm trying to make you feel bad a little bit, but, I, but I'm mainly trying to encourage you. You should be here. You know, you, we do not know how long we have on this earth. What are days that the Lord has numbered? How many they are? And do we not want to know the Lord as well as we can possibly know him so that we may serve him? He loves us so much. 
He's done everything for us. We don't have to do anything. It's not, we have to, it's not that we get brownie points by being in Bible study class. It's not that we get a better place in heaven for being in Bible study class. That, that's, not, that's not so. If we were all locked down in solitary prison cells for whatever reason, we would be as saved as we are if we were in seminary every single day of our life. The Lord has done everything. But since he's done everything, do you not want to know as much as possible about the Savior that loves you to this extent? If you have a human being in your life that you know loves you, as, which is impossible, as much as Jesus loves you, would you not want to know as much as you can about them? Would you, not, would you not want to sit down and say, what do you think about this? Tell me about this. What's your view on this? Where do you come from? Anyway, I'm, I've gotten a little bit off topic. That's my, my mini sermon for the Bible study. But so let's talk about limited atonement, particular redemption. It does fit in. Here's the important question when we speak about this doctrine. For whom did Christ die? Now that seems like a very basic question, and it is. It's, as I said, it's a foundational question to understand this doctrine. If we were to talk to other Christians, not necessarily those from our church, not necessarily those from our sister Reformed Baptist churches, not even necessarily those from Reformed churches in general, but just Christians, and we ask them, for whom did Christ die? Most Christians would say, for the whole world. Of course. But is that true? What does the Bible say? We, we are going to be, you know, we'll, we will probably have these conversations if we have not already with our brethren that are more Arminian in their outlook. Remember the, uh, the idea about the followers of, of Jacob Arminius and the um, response to uh, their petition to the Dutch government to change the doctrine of the Dutch state church, which was Calvinistic. Today, most people in the modern world, the modern Christians, believe this. This has not always been so, historically speaking. But if we want to understand this doctrine properly, we must answer this question. So as we've talked about, the L in our TULIP acrostic or acronym suggests to those who are not familiar with Reformed theology, it suggests limited atonement 
that the death of Christ was of limited value. This is not what the doctrine says. And I know that most of you understand that. And, but we, we need to realize that others do not. And so it's one of these things like when we, when we start conversations, foundationally we need to understand terms that each of us are using. We've all talked to people from pseudo-Christian cults that seem to use the same terms we use. And we think, well, we're of a like mind. I didn't know those guys based in Salt Lake City were, you know, just like me. Or I didn't know those folks that get their orders from Brooklyn, New York, are just like other Christians. No, because the terms are different. So limited atonement does not mean um, that the death of Christ was of limited value. The death of Christ is of infinite value. Christ's sacrifice is sufficient to save all whom he intends to save. As one theologian said, and the name escapes me right now, that Christ's death is sufficient to save all worlds if that was his purpose. So not just every human being on this planet that's ever lived or ever will live, but if there was life elsewhere, I suppose what this theologian is suggesting, because he says worlds, um, that Christ could save every image bearer of God, created by God in the entire cosmos, if that was his intention. But what is his intention? That's, That's what we're going to really look at. So limited atonement deals with this question of what did Jesus accomplish by his death? What did Jesus' death do? Did it make salvation possible for everyone? Did Jesus die for all? If Jesus died for all people, then the cross made salvation only only a possibility, but not an actuality. Think about this. If the sacrificial atoning death of, the, of God the Son on the cross of Calvary, is that such a casual thing? It's just, I mean, it's just a matter of life everlasting or the eternity of the second death that we're talking about, right? No biggie. And I hope you pick up the sarcasm that I'm injecting in here. With that in the balance, can we as sinful human beings be left on our, on our own just to make the right choice as to what our future destination is? Can we do that? Can we honestly do that? I mean, consider the record in the Bible of human choices, beginning with our first parents, Adam and Eve, in the garden. There's not a good record of human choices. It's pretty abysmal. So this is vital to understand. And one of the reasons 
one of the many reasons I think it's vital is in it we need to see the compassion of our Lord. <clears throat> Contrary to what others in the Christian world who are not Reformed, who are Arminian, think about our doctrine, that it's monstrous, that it paints God to be this horrible, horrible being that enjoys sending his created image bearers into hell. But that's not it. And we need to understand why that is not it. So like the opening scripture that we read out of 2 Timothy chapter 1, especially verse 9, Paul says, uses this term, before the ages began. He's talking about the, the covenant of redemption here, where the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are united in this plan of salvation, that they will save human beings. If this plan had no actual specific individuals chosen for electric, excuse me, election to salvation, instead, the plan of salvation was just made available for the choosing because free will, right? I mean, we have free will. How dare God make any decision for us as to whether we're to be saved or not? So if it was up to each individual to make his or her sovereign choice to accept or reject the offer of the cross... Hypothetically, of course, we're spe I'm speaking here because I don't believe this to be the case for a moment. I believe the Bible is very clear this is not the case. But if it was, then if salvation were up to our choosing alone, then it was also up to our losing. If our decision was the deciding factor in salvation, then our decisions could cause us to lose our salvation. And brothers and sisters, I am certain we would all lose salvation. We might be able to consider ourselves saved for a period of time where by our own efforts we could do what we think God wants us to do and we could act morally and justly, ethically, by, by, a, by a Christian ethics, but that wouldn't last for long. If we cannot gain salvation by moral perfection, which we cannot, we know that. Salvation is a free gift, not dependent on our works. But if we, if we cannot, so we cannot gain salvation by moral perfection, then we cannot lose it through moral imperfection. That we have a rock-solid sal salvation that God gives us. See, if we don't have that if, that, is, if that is not the truth of the atonement, then all of us are constantly in peril of losing our salvation. And we would not make it to the end of our days without losing that. Heaven would be empty, except for the divine righteous angels and the triune God. That's not how the plan was designed. 
If it was designed that way, then this covenant of redemption made before ages began could possibly be a failure. The Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit gathered together. We, have to, we, we can only imagine it in our, in, our, in our human concepts, right? So, you know, the three of them coming together in unity and, and planning this, that they're, they're going to do this. It could fail because it's all up to the vagaries of the human will. Will, if it is only our free will that is sovereign over everything. Potentially, all human beings from Adam and Eve onward to the end of time could decide against this offer of salvation. Or they could pick it up for a time and then lose it because they, we lack the moral perfection to live sinlessly. And the cross then would be an exercise in futility, a wasted sacrifice. Is that possible? Could this be possible that Christ's death on the cross is wasted? This, this event from which all time is centered on. This event which rocked the very physical world, which caused earthquakes, which caused the sun to go dark for hours, recorded in annals of, of ancient empires that had no knowledge that Judea even existed. Write about this, the effects of this. Could that have been for nothing? The tombs opening up and the dead coming forth upon Christ's resurrection. Is our Lord God, as we read the revealed word that he has given us, as he describes himself, as he makes himself known to us, is this a God who fails? Does he fail in his will? Does he fail in his decrees? Is he like, well, I tried this, it didn't work, let's try again, you know? No, absolutely not, we know that. Did Christ's death, here's the other side of that coin, I think that was the tail, so here's the head side, side we want. Did Christ's death, death accomplish an actual salvation? That's, that's the other thing. A potential salvation or an actual salvation? Let's turn in our Bibles to Luke, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 9, verse 51. Luke 9, 51. When the days drew near for him, that's the Lord, to be taken up, taken up, to, he, he knows his days are limited on earth. He knows that because he's agreed to this in the covenant of redemption, he knows he's going to be here for a certain amount of time in human form. He knows what's going to happen at Jerusalem, and he knows that he will rise again, he will defeat death, sin, and the devil, and that he will ascend back to the right hand of the Father. So that's what Luke is talking about. The Lord Jesus knows this. His time is limited. 
He's on a, you know, and I don't mean to be um, flippant about it. He's on a time schedule. There's an eternal time schedule in this. So, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Now, this, this term, this, this phrase here, he set his face, that's a Hebraic uh, idiom, if you will. That's, that's something that the ancient Jews would say. What does it mean? We don't really use that term, do we? Um, it's, it's, he, it's, it implies that he steadfastly, resoutly, determinedly journeyed to where these events were going to take place. That, that there is a plan. And interestingly, this is the fulfillment of a prophecy in Isaiah. We look at Isaiah chapter 50. Isaiah chapter 50, verse 7. This comes from the, the, the um, third servant song. And we know, and allow me to remind you, that the, the servant song in, uh, songs in Isaiah are, like, we're, get, we're given insight into dialogue between God the Son and God the Father. How they're going to, how, how, how salvation is going to be worked out. So Isaiah 50, verse 7. But the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. Because the Lord, Jesus, is going to be vindicated of what he must go through. The accusations, the false fake trials, all three of them, the abuse at the hands of the temple police, the abuse at the, of the, at the hands of the Roman soldiers, and then the ignominy, the shame, the embarrassment, humiliation of death on a Roman cross. All of that is vindicated in the resurrection. Man has done his worst to God in human flesh. The worst that could possibly be done at that place at that time was done to the Lord Jesus, and yet the Father vindicates him, shows that he is completely innocent, that he is in fact God in human flesh, and he arises from the tomb, and after 40 days ascends publicly in view of many followers, ascends back to heaven. If this atonement was not actual salvation, then, well, let's say it this way, because we're talking about the heads, the, the, the heads up side of the coin, right? So this is an actual, it's an actual salvation, not a possible salvation. And that being the case, then those who are in heaven are those for whom Christ died, and those alone. That is a particular people that Christ died for. Christ did not accomplish salvation for those who will not be in heaven. Or they would be there. We must understand that. 
And it's difficult, I know, to, to initially grasp this and then to hold on to this, that it is not entirely dependent on what we choose. That we, the elect, have been chosen by the triune God from before the ages began. How do we know? Do you ever wonder? With it? Well, I tell you, brothers and sisters, how you know if you believe that the Lord Jesus is your Savior and you want to live your life for him, you've been transformed. You are not like every other sinner on this earth. You are saved by Christ. So you see how that works? How, it, how our, we are involved in this. It's not just, well, I think I'm elect and I'm just not going to worry about it. Because I know many people do worry about it. It's like, am I really saved? Well, I tell you, if you're thinking about that, that's a pretty good sign. If you don't ever think about it, then you, maybe you should worry. You know, I, I don't even think about my salvation. Oh, it's a pretty big deal. I'm not saying that, you know, that's the, the, the exact litmus test. Don't get, don't get me wrong. But what I'm saying is that if, if you are thinking about the things of heaven more than just every once in a while, more than just when someone mentions it to you, then that's a good sign. We, of course, as Reformed Christians, speak of limited atonement. Others who are not Reformed the Arminians, they, but they don't call themselves. We call ourselves Reformed. They really don't call themselves Arminian. But when you talk to uh, a, an educated pastor from a general evangelical church or you talk to a theologian who is you know, generally evangelical, um, they will use that term. They understand. It's not a disparaging term. It's a, it's a proper label. So I'm, I'm not... I'm not talking down. I'm not talking badly about these folks. I want you to, to understand that. It's just, it's just an easy way to differentiate between these two basic divisions in the view of atonement. This idea that they use, they speak of unlimited atonement. Well, that sounds really good, doesn't, doesn't unlimited atonement sound better than limited atonement? Yes, especially if you don't really understand what is meant by limited atonement. Because they may offer the argument to you, well, I believe Jesus Christ is unlimited in what he can do. Well, amen, brother, I believe that too. But I believe that it is very laser focused when it comes to the atonement. It's not just this general you know, uh, come if you will, and if you don't, oh well. So even we find, I think kind of oddly, even those who refer to themselves as Calvinists, who, who, who espouse Reformed theology, will s some of them pull back from firmly embracing the doctrines of grace at this point. Um, dis they'll describe themselves, and perhaps you've heard this term, as four-point. Calvinists, where um, they they uh, they just can't they just can't accept limited atonement. 
Um, so they, they're, they're not five-point Calvinists. Well, as I've stated you know, early on, and I will continue to try and uh, reinforce this principle as we move forward in our lecture series here, all of these doctrines work together. You know, and, 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 I, and I want everyone that's listening to, to see that as we go through this, how they work together. And picking them apart <clears throat> is, is, a, is a difficult thing to do. And, and how they cross over. When I speak about particular redemption, I also have spoken about the perseverance of the saints. It, it, just, it just all connects. An unconditional election, how that connects. And the sovereignty of God, how it governs all of it. Sometimes, here's a problem, is that we will become kind of mechanical, <clears throat> excuse me, in our thinking. And I'm, what I mean by that, excuse me a moment, <clears throat> is we want to separate all these different parts. It's like if you're a mechanic, an auto tech, and, and you can take an engine apart and put it back together. Um, you know how all those components work. You take someone like me, who can maybe change the spark plug. I did it once in a while when I was, when I was a kid. But you know, don't ask me to do anything like that to your car these days if you need to drive to work tomorrow. A person like me is going to see all these different components and not understand how they work together, right? So, so our doctrine's the same way because it's, it's the whole counsel of God that gives us this doctrine. And... I'm not going to go to uh, a repair shop, say, where, where Brother Steve is working and see this. Oh, this, this one part looks really great. I really like this part. Not sure what it does. Steve explains to me, okay, cool. Yeah, that's important. But you know what? That one, I, I don't like that. It makes me uncomfortable. Let's not use that one when Steve rebuilds my engine. Well, my engine's not going to be functioning properly, is it? No, because all these things work together. The four-point Calvinists, <clears throat> as they describe themselves, right? So again, not disparaging. I don't, I don't quite get it, but anyway, it's there. Is, is it less loving or somehow less Christian for us to say that the Lord God is sovereign over all of our salvation rather than as us fallen mortals who bask in our own sin being sovereign over it? I get no comfort from that idea. If it's up to me, completely up to me, that's frightening. Yeah. Like, <laughs> I see the faces some of you making. You get what I'm saying, right? How about if we called this, instead of limited atonement, how about if we called it definite atonement? Now, this isn't my idea. It's like, wow, Pastor Ken came up with a really good idea. Imagine that. No, I didn't come up with this idea. One of the many authors that I've read, you know, um, uh, on this topic, and I didn't jot a note as to who said it, suggested this. Like, yeah, I think it was probably uh, uh, Boyce. Boyce or Sproul, one of them. They seem to have the, the clearest 
the clearest view of this that's understandable, you know, at a, at a fairly, um, not a lay level, but uh, not, not, not overly theologically deep. They, they write for normal people, not just for academics. <clears throat> so if we called it definite atonement, would opponents respond that they believe in indefinite atonement? Would they have to flip-flop from what, well, we can't go along with what the Calvinists, the five-point Calvinists, what they say. If they're calling it definite atonement, then we believe in indefinite atonement. That, that doesn't sound so good, does it? Yeah, so you see how words affect things? So that just shows us that, that you know, language is important, but what lies behind our language is what is vital. And just changing a term might give a different view, but it does not change the idea behind it. At least it should not, unless you um, believe in postmodern literature, then yes, of course, everything changes and nothing, nothing is set in stone. So although these words are fully important, you know, we need to understand our terms. The controversy is not about that, though. It's about how the gospel doctrines hold together. If the triune God planned from eternity to save one portion of the human race and not another, which is what election affirms, it's what the doctrine of election says. And I know this is hard. It, it, it is hard. Some of us in the Christian church, and I'm talking about faithful Christians here. I'm not talking about, you know, false Christians, false believers. I'm talking about those who are truly saved may want to protect the honor of God. It's like, this makes God look bad. So we cannot accept this. Yes, I know that it seems to be what the Bible says. But obviously, we're getting it wrong. So we've got to come up with a different explanation for it because we don't want God to look bad. Well, you know what, brothers and sisters and friends? God does not need us defending and protecting his honor. God is strong enough to stand on his own. What we need to do is stand upon God's truth. That's how we honor God. He, think of how difficult our lives are at times. Think of how difficult lives are in the world. Think about how over the time of the Christian church, there has been relentless persecution continually. Not always in the same place, in different places. But there's never been a time when the Christian church has not been persecuted. Imagine what it would, well, this, we really can't imagine this. And I don't want to be irreligious or sacrilegious by suggesting we try to imagine the mind of God. But realize, this is better, realize the opposition that has been against the Lord God from the very beginning of creation. Not just human creation, but all creation, including angelic creation. 
the opposition to the one true living God has been relentless. It, is, it has been, over, to humans, overwhelming. We could not imagine it. Yet, to God, what is it like? What is, what is its opposition like? It's like nothing. He wipes the opposition away when he so chooses. It's like when Moses was leaving, leaving, leading the Israelites out of Egypt and they get to the sea and their backs against the sea and the mightiest army on earth, the one superpower at the time is charging towards them on chariots. But that's like ancient, that's like tanks. Could you imagine us being backed against the Pacific Ocean and our enemy in an, in an armored division charging us? And God wipes them out. Like it's no big thing. And it's not for him. That's the power of the one true God, the triune God that we worship. We do not need to protect the Father, Son, or Holy Spirit. They protect us. And we, we're loved by them. And in return, do we not love them back? It's like as a little kid. You know, if you had a good father, you, you looked at your father as the source of protection, right? But on the same hand, I mean, I can remember thinking about, I would just beat up anybody that tried to hurt my dad. You know, I would protect my dad. Well, that's love, so that's understandable. You know, but I'm just trying to put it in perspective. So we do get this. So if this is what election affirms, back to my point, that, that there was one particular people, individuals. Now, there's, there's some theologians who will say, well, it's just a people in general that, that are chosen to be saved, not particular individuals. Well, that's, that's simply not the case. We're going to look at, at, at particular scripture passages that will show us that, that, it, that there are specific individuals, you and you may be watching, that are on the mind of the triune God when the covenant of redemption is made. Yes, we are going to save him and her. They are part of the people we have chosen. Not just, you know what, we're putting this out there and there will be, without a doubt, because the law of probability says that X number of people over the ages when offered this plan of salvation will actually accept it. We're just going with that. Because, you know, hey, because of Las Vegas, it's, it's a gamble, right? But, but eventually, someone's got to beat the house, and, and that's what we're going to do. So it's not a contradiction to say that the Father sent the Son to die for those. No, excuse me. It is a contradiction, then, to say that the Father sent the Son to die for those whom he had previously determined not to save. That, that wouldn't make sense. We need to understand that. He did not send them to die in the same way as for those whom were 
were chosen in particular to be redeemed. But does, here's an important point. Does Christ's death benefit the rest of mankind short of salvation? Does it matter to everybody else? Yes. Yes, there is a benefit to Christ's salvation to those who are not amongst the elect. It brought an ethic into human history which benefits all people. And if you come to the Wednesday night class in Genesis, we're going to be talking about how we can see this occurring in the very early history of Israel with the patriarchs in their history. How God benefits humanity by his selection, beginning with one man. So this, this ethic, which was, which was brought about by the death of Christ and his resurrection and ascension and the Christian church being formed through the power of the Holy Spirit, brought charity, brought love, mercy, humility, chastity, and respect for all life which we can see in our daily headlines is, is horribly missing in the lands where Christianity has, visible, the visible Christianity has been stamped out. These things are not there. And the redemption of a particular people has a positive effect on others because we, as God's elect, should treat all people as potential brothers and sisters in Christ. Because we do not know who is amongst the elect. A person who is our most fierce opponent today, like Saul of Tarsus, tomorrow could be transformed into a loving brother or sister and perhaps a beloved pastor or teacher. We do not know. Who the Lord is to save is withheld from us. We must not forget that. And Jesus came into the world specifically to save those individuals whom the Father had given him and not others. That's what limited atonement means. But we're not done exploring this issue yet. We'll pick it up again next time we have the adult Sunday school. Let me say a prayer, and upon amen, you'll be dismissed for about a seven-minute break before the 11 a.m. service. Heavenly Father, thank you for the salvation that you've brought to us. Thank you for the fact that, Lord, it is, it is immovable. It's, our, our salvation is built on a solid rock of Jesus Christ and the covenant of redemption and the covenant of grace. Father, we give thanks for that, Father. We pray for the rest of the service. We pray for the 11 a.m. worship service. Father, bless Pastor Steve as he delivers the word. Bless Pastor Mike as he brings um, the worship uh, hymns and music to us. Father, may we, may we enjoy these things. May we, may we just celebrate with our minds, our hearts, and everything the, the glory that you have. May we honor you in all things. In Jesus' name, amen.